the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Everglades National Park was somewhat of an anomaly when it was authorized by Congress back in 1934. After all, it marked the first time that federal land was set aside for its abundance of diverse plant and animal species, rather than for its breathtaking scenic views. And it came at a time when much of Florida was considered to be swampland that could only be improved if it was drained to make way for agriculture and homes. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Today, Everglades National Park, which turned 75 in December on the anniversary of its formal dedication as a national park, is renowned worldwide. It holds the largest wilderness area east of the Mississippi, the nearly 1.3 million acre Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness. The river of grass that flows through it is an iconic ecosystem, and the rainbow of colors that dot the sky when flocks of birds take wing are really incredible. But the park didn't come easily into the national park system and continues to face threats that make it the only U.S. World Heritage Site officially considered to be under threat from things like energy production, surrounding urban growth, and nutrient pollution from agriculture. To dive into some of these issues, we're joined today by Dr. Chris Wilhelm, a history professor at the College of Coastal Georgia and author of From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. We'll be back in a minute with Chris. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Welcome to The Traveler, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into your book, what intrigued you about the Everglades to embark on your book? Well, I'm originally from Miami, so I was born and raised in Miami. My, both my parents were born and raised in Miami. My family's been there a really long time. And, you know, so it was always near me. It was always something outside the city. You know, it was, it was a place you would maybe go on a field trip when you're in seventh grade, but it was sort of mysterious because a lot of people don't spend a lot of time in the Everglades. You know, it's, it's, it's really nice in the winter. It's great to go. And, and I recommend people go there in December, January, but you know, you're in Miami in May, June, July, you're, you're not really going out there. So it was sort of this mysterious place to me in a way, you know, wh- what is this? What, what does it mean? It's a swamp, you know, what, what is it like? And so it was always sort of this, I think, object of fascination. And then when I got into graduate school and started studying history, I sort of realized that there was not a ton written about it. And it seemed just like a really good, entry point 
for a career in, in writing history and teaching. And then the more I got into it, the more fascinated I became with it. I just really ended up falling in love with this place and this history. Now, now you're a history professor. Are you, um, what's your focus? Is it environmental history? Is it American history? So I'm an, I'm an environmental historian. I do, I do environments and I do uh, U.S. South as well. And I do modern U.S. And, and so it's sort of interesting because I'm, I, I really was trained as a Southern historian. And you get into these interesting sort of questions when you do Southern history, you know, how Southern is Florida? Is Florida part of the South? I think we don't typically think of the Everglades as a Southern environments but but you know for me it is the history of it is very much a southern state so that that's what i study yeah yeah that's got to be really fascinating you know looking at florida as a southern state that was populated by northerners yes <laughs> in many <laughs> in many aspects and many of the people in in this book ernest co in particular is a northerner he's from new england comes down here and he is sort of the impetus of this so it's it's it really is an interesting place. And a lot of people have commented on this. Florida is sort of a lot of different places at once because Southern Florida is so different from Northern Florida, which is different from the middle, which is different from the panhandle. Right, right. Yeah, it's really a huge state. I mean, you know, I'm out here in Utah where, you know, it takes you seven, eight hours to, to drive across Wyoming. And, um, you know, growing up in New Jersey, you know, that could have taken me three or four states. And, and Florida is much the same. If you're driving from the Panhandle down to Miami, that's not a short trip. Yeah, it's an eight, eight or nine hour drive. And so as a kid, you know, I remember going on, on, on road trips with my parents and it was like, we're going to leave Florida. And it's like, whoa, we're going to leave the state. It was this amazing thing because it was so long to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, looking at the park, I mean, you grew up in Miami. Um, the park encompasses a lot of the southern third perhaps of, of Florida is there is there a specific part of the park that you enjoy more than others well if, if you want to go into Everglades National Park there's there's really two really good ways to do it and so the first way is uh, the main entrance which is in Homestead Florida so it's on the eastern part of the park and there is one road there's essentially one road in the park and that road will take you from that entrance down to Flamingo. And Flamingo is a, is a former uh, fishing village. It was also sort of a, you know, site for a lot of moonshiners in the 20s, uh, a lot of bird poachers before that, people, people poaching birds or just, just kill, killing birds because it wasn't poaching yet because it wasn't illegal for their plumes. And so you can go down there and, and that's a really great drive. And there's lots of places to stop along the way. There's lots of really cool things to see, and you can make a day out of that very easily. And there's campsites down, down at Flamingo as well. So that's a really cool trip to make. You see a lot of different ecosystems along the way. You can go into the mahogany hammock. You can see the coastal. There's a great trail out at Flamingo uh, along sort of the coastal plain, which is sort of just this wild ecosystem full of all these really weird plants and weird like soil and you're on the water and it's salty and rocky and it's it's very strange uh and then the other really fun trip to do is if you go to the west coast of florida and you go to everglades city and you rent a kayak or you rent a canoe and you can canoe or kayak down there's two different routes there's there's an inland route and then there's a route 
that's the islands sort of sort of right along the uh, along the coast and uh, you can camp along these islands and right. it's amazing i mean that I, I i did a five or six day trip about 10 years ago and it was incredible Th those islands are they're mangrove islands they're really unlike anything you're going to see anywhere else in the country they're amazing and and I, that was one of the best you know, nature experiences I ever had in my life taking that trip. I mean, it's so it's really beautiful, and you really do feel like you're 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 in a wilderness. You know, you're 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 in the water. You're on these islands, and and no one else is there. You you can't just you know park your car and walk down there. It, it really is the Everglades is tough to get through sometimes. Yeah, but yeah. you feel more of that wilderness experience in a way. Yeah, no, it sounds really incredible. Now you know you've described the park. Uh, and in your book, you know, you focus on the politics of how Everglades National Park came to be, but you also describe the park as an actor in the story. What do you mean by that? Be, the, the remoteness of it, the, the, um, the challenges of, of navigating it? Yeah, exactly. So this, this is something that environmental historians talk, talk a lot about, the nature as a historical actor. And so, you know, it's not just humans that make history, you know, nature can shape history as well. Um, I think we all, you know, sort of saw this with, with COVID, this natural disease really shaped the way we live. And the Everglades, I think also shaped this. And, and part of it is exactly what you're saying, the, the hostility of this landscape, it's, it's a wetland. So it's wet land. You can't just walk down into it, you know, like you can, most national parks you or you know most places in nature it's it's very difficult to to kind of get into it and so and so that certainly shaped the way people thought about uh, the politics of the park and shaped the way people thought about the park as a wilderness another big sort of factor that impacted the history of the everglades were hurricanes mm -hmm. you know hurricanes would come through and, and have huge historical impacts. So in, in 1926 and 1928, there's two really big hurricanes that come through. And those hurricanes really are, are, are one big factor that explains the end of the Florida land boom, which in turn really ends Florida drainage. There, there was this persistent effort between 1884 and 1926 to drain the Everglades. And those hurricanes really showed that that the Everglades had not been drained and probably wouldn't be drained. And then after the parks created in 1947, you have another set of hurricanes flow, you know, come in in 1947, two of them. And those also sort of provoke people to think about their relationship with with water in the Everglades. And, and those hurricanes sort of have the opposite impact. People look at them and they say, well, maybe, maybe we we need to control this water because if not, it's going to flood. And, and maybe, maybe you know, after World War II, after splitting the atom and inventing DDT, maybe we're better equipped. And I think, I think a lot of Americans at that time had a lot more confidence or perhaps arrogance in their, in their ability to control nature. And so in 1947, you see the beginning of a flood control regime that continues into today. And so that's also sort of provoked by hurricanes. So the hurricanes play a big role in this history. The Everglades itself sort of shapes the way people thought about it and shaped the politics and, and shaped so many things about how people conceived and, and argued for this park. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look out across the national park system, there are 
relatively few units that that are almost these living, breathing entities as the Everglades is with, you know, all the different natural dynamics you have there, whether it's uh, um, the, the river of grass that makes for the, the moisture, the, the wet content, the wetlands, the swamp, whatever you want to call it, the hurricanes coming through, um, the, the blistering hot sun in the summer months. Um, it, it's uh, a not, not a very inviting landscape. <laughs> it's sort of not. Which, which is sort of why it was so difficult to create the park. I don't want to scare people away, though. Go to the Everglades in the winter. It's great. But it is. You're not just going to get out of your car and walk somewhere in the Everglades. Right. right. Stay on the trail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking today with uh, Dr. Chris Wilhelm, a history professor at the College of Coastal Georgia and the author of the new book, From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park, We'll be back in a minute. Our friends at Interior Federal Credit Union offer BillPay, a free service in digital banking that allows you to pay your utilities, credit cards, and other bills, as well as track your payments quickly and securely. You can schedule exactly when you need your payments sent and whether to make a one-time or recurring payment. It's convenient and good for the environment. To sign up, log into online banking, choose bill payment from the top tab, and follow the instructions to register. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on their homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So, Chris, I'm wondering, um, as I mentioned in the show's introduction, the addition of Everglades to the national park system marked the first time that a park unit was established to protect nature, the flora and the fauna that live there, rather than expansive scenic views. You address this in your book, um, pointing out that the campaign to establish the park reflected transitions in American environmental thought. What were those transitions, and, and how do you think the campaign ultimately affected this environmental thought? If it did, yeah, that's a that's a great question. A lot, lot to talk about there. So, so if you if you looked at how American conservationists thought about nature in what historians call the Progressive Era, so 1890 to 1920, that sort of falls into two camps. You had the utilitarian conservationists, people like uh, Gifford Pinchot, who is closely associated with the U.S. Forest Service. And that view was sort of use nature, but use it efficiently and use it in a smart way. And then on the other hand, you had people like John Muir, who kind of made this argument 
you know, nature is beautiful and we need to protect it. And, and that view is sort of more enshrined in the National Park Service. And, and what you sort of see start to happen kind of starts in the 20s and really in the 30s and 40s, early 40s, is, is a couple different strains of thought. And, and the most important of these is the science of ecology. And so the science of ecology sort of it, it emerges as an independent scientific field in the 1930s. And you have a number of those people who are looking at ecosystems uh, and, and a number of them become involved in the National Park Service. A number of them become involved in the Forest Service as well. Many of them are involved in game management. And, and, and so you start to have this sort of percolation of ecological ideas sort of moving from scientists into the field of conservation. Um, and, and so that's one strain. I think another strain of this is you also start to have people embracing, you know, what I would call a biocentric ethic sort of just a sense that nature has value in and of itself, that, that species have inherent value. And if you sort of look at the, the progressive era view, species sort of had value either because they were useful to humans or because they were beautiful. So, so bison, for example, are this beautiful, charismatic megafauna species. Uh, plume birds in the Everglades had value because they were beautiful. But there's sort of this new idea in the 30s that it doesn't have to be beautiful. We, we don't have to assign it a value. It just has value. And so maybe alligators have value or snakes have value. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hearing that's held in 31 and they bring in a herpetologist and he's testifying about the value of snakes. And snakes are something that most people, I, I think even today are scared of. We don't want to touch snakes. Snakes are gross. Oh, these are scary things. And this uh, female congressperson from, from Miami who's running the hearing picks up the snake and puts it around her neck. And it's this great scene. It's reported all across the country. You know, snakes are valuable. They're alive and they have value. And that's sort of another one of these sort of ideas that is percolating. And so those two ideas right there, this idea of biocentric ethics, this, this idea of ecology, they really become central to the fight for Everglades National Park. And, and those ideas eventually become uh, very central to modern environmentalism. I mean, there's others, other ideas as well, I think. But those are sort of the centerpiece in a lot of ways. Um, you know, when, when Rachel Carson writes Silent Spring, that really brings ecology into the mainstream. What's happening in, in the park in the 30s in the Everglades is those ideas are being put to use to fight this campaign. And what I would say is other historians have written about this. There's, there's other books about these environmental ideas in the 30s influencing things. So I, I didn't make up this argument, but I, I would argue that Everglades National Park is the best expression of those environmental ideas manifesting in the 1930s and 40s. And I guess it's safe to say um, that the successful campaign for Everglades resulted in, in a significant and long-lasting impacts to National Park Service policy regarding what should be a national park? I mean, we're no longer just looking at uh, the Tetons or, or the geysers in Yellowstone. Um, it's a whole different philosophy of what should be included in the park system, no? Absolutely. And, and, and again, that, that's happening more broadly, but Everglades is by far the best example of this. 
Um, there, there was this sort of concerted move in the late 20s. There, there's a lot of criticism of the national parks in the 20s. There's some very famous articles published about how you know, Yosemite is a parking lot in the 20s. These sort of concerns that get echoed throughout. I mean, we've been saying this for 100 years. Yosemite is a parking lot. Yeah, yeah. And those criticisms in the 20s really provoke many people to start rethinking what parks are. And so there are a number of people saying, well, we need to expand what parks are. We need to include more ecosystems. They're not using the term ecosystems, but more types of nature in the park. And so those, those, those ideas are out there. Um, I think Everglades goes further than they would have even thought possible. You know, the idea that a wetland could be a park. And in fact, to many conservationists early in the fight for the park, the Everglades was controversial. They didn't think it should be a park. There were individuals like Robert Sterling Yard, who's a very strong proponent of, of national parks in the 20s and 30s, who was opposed to Everglades for a time because it's just too different. It's too different from what he thought a park would be. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely happening. I, I would say another kind of important element of this was the influence of a number of wildlife biologists in the 1930s uh, who, who worked in the park service. One of the most important individuals in the park service for me is an individual named George Wright who wrote or, or you know, headed this big effort that resulted in the publication of a number of books examining the fauna of the national parks. And he had all these ideas about parks should preserve wildlife and that's what they should be doing. And those ideas were very important and, and other parks reflected them in the thirties in some ways, but they were absolutely central to the Everglades. They found their fullest expression in the Everglades. And in fact, what, what I argue in the book is that Ernest Coe, the guy behind the Everglades National Park, took those ideas and pushed them even further than Wright had done and applied them not just to fauna, but to flora and talked about a park to protect plants, which was very radical in the 1930s. So yeah, it, the Everglades absolutely embodies changes in the park service as well. Now, looking more broadly across the national park system, why do you think it took different approaches to establish eastern parks like, you know, Shenandoah, Acadia, Great Smoky Mountains, compared to their western counterparts? I mean, the, the eastern parks, in many cases, were authorized long before they were formally added to the park system because the land had to be acquired and transferred to the federal government, while in the west, you know, much of the land already was in the federal domain. And of course, I guess in the case of Everglades, it was a, another situation where the land had to be acquired. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. In, in the West, the federal government owns the land, so they can pretty quickly create many of these parks. And in the East, all, all these parks you mentioned, Acadia is another one, Isle Royale is another, Big Bend is another one. All of these, they're, they're sort of authorized in the 20s and 30s, and then they're not actually created. Sometimes 10, 20 years later, because the land is owned by, by private individuals and by the states. And in a lot of those parks you mentioned, you sort of had, uh, you know, J.D. Rockefeller Jr. actually played a really big role in many of those parks. He came in and simply gave them a million dollars or two to buy the lands. And that was not going to happen in the Everglades. There was some speculation, well, maybe he'll do that again, but he wasn't going to do it again. I think he had done it already a bunch of times. He, he also helped expand Grand Teton. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, the question kind of arose, how are you going to get this money? There was a hope 
that people in the Everglades would donate their lands for the park. That never happened. There was a hope that the state of Florida could swap their lands in the park area for lands up in the north. That didn't happen either. And so it just took a really long time to, to sort of build that political will to figure out a way to get this money together to purchase this park. And in the Everglades, what, what ended up happening was the, the park was authorized in 34 by the federal government. So the federal government basically says, okay, when you get the land together and you give it to us, we'll create the park. Uh, so they approved it in 34 in principle. It's not till 47 when they created. And what really happened was at the end of World War II, the state of Florida had tons of money. <laughs> they had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. And so the first act of the 1947 legislature was to appropriate $2 million for the creation of the park. You know, and just to give you some context here, in 1937, the governor in Florida didn't want to spend $30,000 on the park. $30,000 was way too much to spend in a two-year period. And he, and he threatened to veto this appropriation and ensure that the money would never be spent. And then here you are 10 years later, $2 million. The, the, I think it's a voice vote in the, in the state Senate and like five minutes of debate in, in the House and it's just not even controversial because the state of Florida just had so much money. And they really saw this as a way to sort of build and transform Florida into this modern tourism empire. But it was a long road to get there. So how much land, what, was it all privately owned or state owned before the park was created? So it's a mix of state owned and privately owned Um the other problem here is so much of this land had been bought and sold in the Florida land boom. And the Florida land boom was wild. I mean, you, you would buy land in the morning and sell it in the afternoon for triple the price. And that would just happen over and over and over again. And so you kind of had this situation where a lot of the land, it was, some of the land had been sold to three people. Some of, none of the land had ever been surveyed. So this is another problem. None of it's been surveyed because you, you can't get it. I mean, getting a survey crew out there is very difficult. Most of it had back taxes owed on it. So during the depression, no one's paying their taxes. And then a lot of it is also disputed title. So there's all kinds of instances. So for example, the biggest uh, private landowner in the Everglades was a company called the Model Land Company, which was Henry Flagler's a Henry Flagler company. All the land he got from the state of Florida for building the railroad, he transferred it to the model land company. And they had these Everglades lands, but there were all these problems with the survey. So they were claiming that they owned lands that were underwater called sovereignty lands, but those lands are owned by the state. There's also a category of lands called hiatus lands, which are lands that exist in between the surveys, because the survey lines don't match. So there's all these complicated things. Again, the Everglades itself is sort of changing this history because the land is so difficult to survey. It's never been surveyed. And there's all these complicated problems with where is the land? What is it? How much is it worth? You know, you had the model land company saying, well, this land is valuable because we think it can be used for agriculture. And then the Park Service goes down there and they say, no, that land is underwater. <laughs> it's not valuable for agriculture. So the, the nature of the Everglades itself sort of made it more complicated. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. We're talking today with Chris Wilhelm, an environmental historian who has written a new book, 
from swamp to wetland, the creation of Everglades National Park. We're gonna take a short break, we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, we're back today with Chris Wilhelm, a environmental professor at the College of Coastal Georgia who wrote um, From Swamp to Wetland, the creation of Everglades National Park. Chris, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you mentioned earlier, one of the driving forces in creation of the National Park was Ernest Coe. Um, a New England nurseryman who moved to Miami in 1925, and you labeled him as a pro-environmentalist. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Yeah, a proto-environmentalist. So he's, proto. he's, sort, of, he's sort of this uh, figure that came to believe many of these underlying ideas that would later be embraced as modern environmentalism. He's a fascinating figure. So like you said, he's, he's a nursery man and that's what they would have called them at the time. That's, that's the term I use in my book. And that's a term from, from that time. He's a, he's a nursery owner. He's part of the nursery man association. Uh, and, and in the progressive era, he is, is very much devoted to controlling nature. This is what he does. He owns a really, really large nursery in Connecticut. And uh, they're, they're growing, I mean, he, he writes in, this, in these catalogs about growing, planting millions of plants and, and trees for sale for the next year. He's really fascinated by exotic uh, flora. He goes to Japan multiple times and brings Japanese plants over to America. He actually brings the first private collection of bonsai into the United States and is a proponent of bonsai. And so this is, this is his life. His life is shaping nature for beauty and utility. Well, yeah. Didn't he come down to um, Miami to try and take advantage of the land, land boom at the time? Absolutely. He comes down here to follow his artistic passion for landscape architecture. He sees the land boom going on and sort of decides this will be a great second career for me. I'll, I'll move down there. I'll, I'll follow my artistic passions as a landscape architect designing these new developments and, and new mansions down in Miami. He's 58 when he moves down to Florida. And as soon as he moves here, the land boom goes bust and his hopes and dreams are, are dashed, which I think is a very Florida thing sometimes. People move down to Florida to chase these dreams. The dreams don't always work out. But what he finds instead is the Everglades. And he really embarks on this mission to educate himself about what the Everglades are. And he, and he gets 
sort of looped into this community of Florida naturalists, people like David Fairchild, uh, John Kunkel Small. These are all people that I talk about in the book. He also becomes very influenced by those 1930s National Park Service wildlife biologists and really, you know, tries to, to learn about conservation. You know, he's a neophyte. He's never done anything in politics or conservation before. And he tries to sort of educate himself about these ideas. And he's sort of entering these fields just as all these new ideas are percolating. And he embraces those new ideas and runs with them. He, he understands that the Everglades was not going to be made a park relying on these old ideas about utilitarian conservation or aesthetic preservation. You needed a new set of rationales for this park. The only way you were gonna convince people that the Everglades had value was if you embraced an ecological view of nature and if you embraced a, a biocentric appreciation for flora and fauna. And so Code does those things and, and really creates the, the, the underpinning, the, the intellectual underpinning of the park. Did, did he know um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Did they um, overlap? He, he did know Stoneman Douglas. So, so Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in the 30s is mostly um, writing short stories for the Saturday Evening Post and then researching. At the end of the 30s, she starts researching her book, from, uh, you know, River of Grass. And they did overlap. They did know each other. Uh, there's a there's a big uh, there's a big trip they take into the Everglades in 1931. They take a delegation of officials from the Park Service and from the Depart Department of the Interior. They take a blimp ride over the Everglades. They take a houseboat down into the 10,000 Islands. And Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is there with them, serving as a special reporter for the Miami Herald. And she writes a series of really really beautiful articles on this in 1931. And according to Douglas's biographer, that was her first trip into the Everglades beyond an improved road. Mm -hmm. And so I think Coe really shaped her early views of the Everglades. Coe was in a way sort of maybe not a mentor, but so certainly someone who showed her things she had never seen before in the Everglades. Um, and then in 47, of course, she writes River of Grass, which comes out a couple months after the park's creation. Yeah, interesting. Now, you you argue that Coe's thinking influenced the National Park Service, but also that National Park Service biologist George Melendez, right, you mentioned, influenced him. Could could you explain this back and forth dynamic? Yeah, um, you know, like I said, Coe sort of enters this realm not really knowing a lot, and. You know, he does sort of make some mistakes early on, some political gaffes, and he, he wasn't always the best politician. I sort of refer to him as a prophet in the book, and prophets can be troublesome sometimes, and so he was certainly troublesome, but he, he really embraced George Wright's ideas and became a really ardent follower of George Wright. They corresponded quite a bit. Uh, George Wright wrote about the Everglades in some of his reports and, and his book, Fauna of the National Parks. And, and Wright was, was really important in, in provoking Coe to think more seriously about ecosystems, to think more seriously about how tourism would work in the Everglades. What would tourists do? What, what type of negative impacts might they have? 
How, how, how can you preserve tourism and wilderness at the same time? These are all things that Co thought about because of Wright. And, and you know, George Wright and his sort of cadre of, of people, you know, Wright tragically died very young in a car accident. And pretty soon after his death, a lot of those wildlife biologists were transferred to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And those ideas sort of became less important in the Park Service. And what I would say is that they were kept alive in the Everglades. The, the, the Everglades continued to shine a light for those ideas even after Wright had died and all of his buddies were transferred out. Um, but yeah, there was this back and forth where the two were influencing each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And now it's interesting um, that Everglades was established to protect nature. And even today, we hear arguments made in Congress that the national parks generate, you know, for every $1 you, you appropriate from Congress to the Park Service, that's going to generate $10 in economic return out there across the country. And so there's this, this economic justification, it seems, for the park system when, when I would argue, as they argued back in the, the 30s, that we should hold up nature for nature's sake and for the value of nature and biodiversity and whatnot. And at the same time, economic rationales, as you point out, were critical to the creation of Everglades. And Co. and his, his supporters were, were not averse to using such rationales along with the rationales for biological preservation. I mean, you just mentioned the uh, George Melendez right talking to Co. about you have to think about how tourism is going to play a role here. And, and yet, I guess they were pragmatists who recognized that biological rationales alone would not be successful in creating the park? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Co. you know, the other thing about Co. is he was just a shameless booster. He would say anything if he thought it would help get the park made. You know, in his heart of hearts, what he cared about was the plant life and the ecosystems of the Everglades. But he understood that these politicians in Tallahassee and these business people in Florida we're not really going to care very much about a bunch of birds. They were going to care about money. And so Co. also made these economic arguments and he made a lot of a lot of sort of wild, crazy economic arguments about the impact of tourists and, and said all kinds of things about the value of tourism. And, you know, people listened to that stuff and, and that became central to sort of the second phase of the park's creation you know, Coe sort of goes away in the in the mid 30s, late 30s. He, he sort of becomes less effective, and a new generation of activists sort of emerge uh, in the in the 40s, and they understand the park's biological values, but they are more concerned about the park's economic values, and 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 they really see it as an engine for tourism, but even more importantly, they see it as a way to sort of redefine Florida. You know, it's, it's not just that the park is going to bring tourists to Florida, it's that the park will help change the way people think of the state overall. You know, the park will be a federal seal of approval for Florida tourism. We're not just a swamp filled with alligators. We have a federal stamp of approval. This is a good place to be a tourist. And they thought it would provoke the spread of more tourist facilities and more, more tourist attractions and bring tourists in, not just to see the Everglades, but to see all of these things. 
So the economics were central. They made both arguments. All of them, all of these activists in the first phase and second phase are saying both of these things. And yet today, Everglades National Park is the only site in the United States that is a World Heritage Site and the only site that is a World Heritage Site in danger, probably in large part because of the growth that grew up around the Everglades. You know, some of it's tourism, some of it's agriculture. Um, it's a tough balance out there to to preserve nature on one hand and yet make way for, for all the economics that, that are pinged to it. Yeah, they, they sought to redefine Florida and they redefined it so well that everyone wanted to move here <laughs> and that has caused negative impacts, you know? So, so it's, that's always the tension that, that I see in Florida with its relationship to nature. People want to come here because of the natural world. It's a great place to be a tourist. It's a great place to retire. But then you have so many people here impacting that very landscape and that very nature that they came here for. Yeah, and I think we're seeing similar um, cases play out across the, the park system, you know, with, with urban sprawl and um, ranchettes in the West that are breaking up migratory corridors and, and whatnot. And, you know, I'm not sure there's a solution to that. Yeah, a great exercise is to go on Google Maps and look at Everglades National Park, and you can see very clearly on the you know, East Coast, where the park begins and where agriculture ends. And you can you can see it in other parks as well. I mean, you know, we want to sort of as humans and, and as governments draw lines and say this is where the park is. But wildlife does not respect those lines and can't respect those lines. Ecosystems don't respect those lines. And so this is, I think, always one of the big challenges with parks. And it's something that George Wright wrote a lot about in the 30s. A lot of his writings were about boundaries and how boundaries needed to be drawn around habitats. Uh, and that's something that Coe really believed as well. And it's something that he sort of refused to compromise on. And it's something that actually sort of delayed the park's creation because he was so unwilling to compromise these boundaries because he wanted boundaries drawn around habitats, not boundaries sort of thrown up arbitrarily where you could then impede on those boundaries, encroach on those boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Now, now looking at the, the current threats that the, the park faces, you know, energy production, um, urban growth, um, nutrient pollution from agriculture, I think some, some strides are being made. I mean, certainly the, the restoration of the, the river of grass is, is moving forward in, in um, great strides. How do you think things are going to play out? I mean, that, that World Heritage Site in danger label has been hanging on to the park for, for more than a decade now. Is it just going to be something that uh, the park and the park service and the state of Florida has, has to live with, or has it motivated change? Yeah, I think the most important threat by far is, is the threat of, of the, the, the issue of water flow. You know, historically, what would happen every wet season is that Lake Okeechobee would just overflow south. And that doesn't happen anymore. You have this dike around the lake and you have canals and levees that send water different places. And so the Everglades doesn't get the water it needs. The water it does get is often polluted by agricultural runoff. And so to me, that is by far the most important question is, is can you 
you're not going to restore the Everglades because that would, to do that, you would have to knock the dike down and restore that natural flow. But what you can do is simulate something that is approximate to what the flow of water was in Everglades National Park. And, and you're absolutely right. Great strides are being made. There is a lot of positive work being done on this. There, there's always new, there's always new good news. Yeah. I, Mind about the water situation. And that's by far the most important, the most important question. You know, I think my sort of fear <laughs> is, is that with sea level rise, you know, how much of this will matter because so much of the Everglades is just feet above sea level or inches above sea level. And so I think with sea level rise, which you, and you are seeing this already, salt water encroaching up north into the Everglades, and that will, will change the ecosystem. You know, I don't want to say it will destroy the Everglades, but it will change the Everglades. Yeah. So we sort of have to think about, is that a good change or not? And, and so the water, you know, the Everglades is all about water. And if you're not giving it enough fresh water and then you're encroaching the salt water up, then what is it going to look like? And so those are the threats that I think are, are the most dire. I'll just add another one. Anytime I talk about the Everglades, someone always asks about Burmese pythons because invasive species are another, are another uh, threat. And that's one that I am very less confident about. That just doesn't seem like there's a good solution to the invasive species problem everywhere in our world. Um, but the other ones, I, the, you know, the water flow one, I think we're making good progress on and I'm hopeful that that will continue to get better. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, um, you know, right next door to Everglades National Park is Biscayne National Park. And, you know, 95%, I believe, of Biscayne is underwater. And a few years back, the, the Park Service tried to create a marine reserve to pr protect basically the northern end of the, the Florida Reef, I believe it's called, because there was concerns about how, how um, commercial fishing was, was harming the, the reef and the fisheries because of you know, anchors coming down and, and overfishing and whatnot. And the Park Service came up with a plan and um, political forces managed to destroy that plan and um, we don't hear talk about it anymore. Is there any, in Florida, any recognition of the threats that economics have brought to Everglades National Park and they could do the same for Biscayne National Park? And maybe it's apples and oranges. I don't know. I just, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you know, you're actually asking me a question about my next project, which my next project <laughs> is a a history of marine preservation in Florida. Um, Everglades National Park is, is about a third uh, saltwater as well. So the Florida Bay is a big chunk of, of Everglades National Park. And it's something I talk about in my book is, is that this was also a marine park as well. And that's something Coe talked about quite a bit. Coe actually wanted what is today John Pennycamp State Park, which is in the Keys, which abuts Biscayne National Park. He wanted that included in, in the Everglades and couldn't get it. So they were taught, Coe was actually talking about, about issues related to you know, marine quality. And there was a big controversy within the park about commercial fishing. They had to sort of tell commercial fishers, we won't restrict your activity in Everglades National Park. They eventually did anyway, you know, decades later. But it's still being overfished, isn't it? It's, it's hard to say if, 
you know, what's being overfished. I mean, you, you, you ban certain types of fishing in Everglades National Park, but then you have right on the other side. Again, the problem with boundaries right outside the park, well, you can fish there. So even if you ban fishing in one part of the ocean, the fish are going to move to the other part and then there's overfishing there. So there, there's definitely, I mean, how bad is the overfishing? I think you can have debates, but there's certainly overfishing happening down there. I'll say Florida, I think, does have a somewhat good program of, you know, commercial fishing regulations. And part of that is because sport fishing is so big in Florida. So there is this sort of really early, even as early as the 60s, an attempt to regulate commercial fishing, not necessarily to prevent overfishing, but to create opportunities for sport fishers, for just recreational fishing. But yeah, these, these questions about sort of how do you protect marine waters are sort of the focus of my next, my next project and, and are really interesting questions because it's an even harder, it's even harder to protect an aquatic park because the boundaries are so much more fluid. What are you protecting? You know, we, people talk about air pollution coming into national parks. You got an aquatic park, <laughs> that's water. So you got water everywhere just coming in. You can't control it. So the questions are so much more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, it's been interesting today talking about um, your current book and, and looking forward to the, your next project because uh, it is critical whether you're looking at uh, Everglades or Biscayne or Virgin Islands or Hawaii um, Volcanoes National Park. You can just go on and on and on. We've got all these marine parks that are impacted by uh, microplastics by climate change, um, more potent storms, um, invasive species. It, it's kind of sad at times to talk about it, but um, it's been fun talking today about Everglades and uh, keep us uh, up to date with your next project because we'd like to have you back on to discuss that. Anytime. Thank you so much. I had a great time. That's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. The intersection of nature and economics is an interesting one. We need money to protect nature, but economic activity on a park's doorstep can be detrimental to the health of the park. What do you think? Can the two be balanced so both thrive? Leave a comment on The Traveler with your thoughts. Next week, we're going to be discussing the floods, wildfires, droughts, and other unusual weather patterns that have touched various parts of the national park system. Are they just the result of weather, or is climate change driving these episodes? For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.